Quiet on the set. From the studio of WHUP LP Hillsboro, welcome to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo, and over the next hour together, we'll explore where culture meets craft. Today on Murmur, our past imperfect. Filmmaker, writer, philosopher, Peter Bogdanovich is here to discuss Citizen Kane at 75. Welcome to Murmur. Welcome back to Murmur. Happy to be with you, Robert Malazzo here of the Modern School of Film. This is our weekly show, 2 p.m. every week live on WHEPLP Hillsboro, also on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. I've got to figure out this Stitcher thing, but we have a website, MSF Murmur. Oh, sorry, the website is murmurradio.com. On that website, you can see who's coming up uh, in terms of guests, and also you can drop us a line via email, via the website. The email is murmurradio at gmail.com. Send us a line. We will read your questions. We will read your comments. We, uh, If there's a guest coming up and you uh, specifically point a question at a guest, we will uh, engage the guest with your question, meaning we will ask the question. So definitely drop us a line. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at MSF Murmur. Yeah. Uh, today, Peter Bogdanovich, I um, was searching for the right word to, inter- to uh, introduce Peter uh, in, the in-, in the opening there. And um, he started as an actor, uh, trained with Stella Adler, actually. And became a filmmaker. And I think in his heart he was always an actor. Uh, But I think the filmmaking has eclipsed that for most film lovers and most people who have never seen The Sopranos know that Peter is a legendary, iconic filmmaker. The last adjective or the last noun I was looking for was uh, a bit elusive, but I think I ended up on the right one, which is philosopher. Now, philosopher, philosophy has a curious origin. It's a Greek word. And uh, the term, it's, it's derived, philos, uh, is the etymology of philos is to love. And the origin of the, the, the second half of the word philosophy, sophos or sophie, if you have a friend named sophie in your life, the origin of her name and that word particle is wisdom. So philosopher, so philosophy is a love of wisdom. Philosopher is he or she whom loves wisdom. I I tend to, I don't know if I love wisdom because I think wisdom feels a little aristocratic for the things that intrigue me as a teacher and uh, as a human being. In that order, <laughs> the uh, applying that tag to Peter or that name to Peter 
and and looking at the history of philosophy <laughs> very briefly well considering philosophy and philosophy is is a is an interesting dish of 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 thought in and of itself it's a it's a thought about a thought calling peter bogdanovich a philosopher got me to the essential question of what a philosopher is or what a philosopher does And failing that answer, I arrived at the question, does a philosopher ask questions or does a philosopher answer questions? And that's a seminal question when you think of Peter, Peter who's made a life as an artist, practitioner, but also as a philosopher because I consider him someone who loves wisdom loves thought and information. Now, loving wisdom, is wisdom the answer or is it simply the acknowledgement that we need an answer or that there's a question? Many people live their lives without questions. Many people live their lives without answers. We aspire maybe to be somewhere in the middle where we have questions, a healthy amount of questions, healthy amount of answers. I <laughs> won't, I'll, I'll come ever so short of categorizing myself those who know me can answer this pretty rapidly. But getting back to that idea, do philosophers ask questions or do they answer them? It's thinking about human behavior, thinking about human life. I was recently thinking back to my time working for David Mamet, the writer and author, and he had a very simple, not very simple, but he had a, a kind of baseline idea of, what an actor does in a scene. An actor needs to decide before they get into a scene their objective. This is a kind of omnipresent idea in acting philosophy. But for Mamet, he would always say, pick something, choose something to want that you can never have. And when asked why, his answer was quite simple. And it really relates to life in a sense that if you get what you want, the scene is over. If you're acting in a scene and you choose something that, that is attainable, the scene will end. Uh, and when you think of life that way, right? Uh, I don't know. I, I think as I get older, I, I want more answers. <laughs> I, I guess the questions are, are great, but the answers uh, relax me. Uh, Peter is someone who's asked questions and one man in one film he's asked a lot of questions of and seemingly has derived answers from, that's awful grammar, the movie is Citizen Kane, the filmmaker's Orson Welles. Peter wrote a book, This is Orson Welles, 1968. Orson Welles calls him on the phone. The first thing he says to Peter is, hello, this is Orson Welles. So it was appropriate that Peter's book which is a compendium of the interviews they did, is called This is Orson Welles. Today, with Peter specifically, we want to talk about Citizen Kane, which turned 75, the ripe old age of 75. What do you get the movie that has it all on its birthday? You know, this movie is fascinating because really it took everything that was great about cinema before and it, it, it learned all those lessons. Talk about philosophy, talk about philosophers, talk about wisdom. It learned all those answers. And it led to questions. I fear the questions may not be relevant anymore. That's my fear because when one spends one's life searching for answers and you find those answers occasionally, you hope the answers are useful. Citizen Kane's, are Citizen Kane's answers useful? They certainly led to new questions for those audiences. Peter, Peter really forged a life in a way based on that. And the film is about questions and about not knowing and about never knowing. And it's one of the great gifts of cinema. We don't always have to know. What's more interesting? The things we know or the things we've yet to know. Today, 
on Murmur, Peter Bogdanovich, who knows a fair bit. Mike? Give me a mic. Thank you. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Orson Welles. I'm speaking for the Mercury Theater, and what follows is supposed to advertise our first motion picture. Citizen Kane is the title, and we hope it can correctly be called a coming attraction. It's certainly coming, coming to this theater, and I think our Mercury actors make it an attraction. I'd like you to meet them. Speaking of attractions, well, the chorus girls are certainly an attraction, but frankly, ladies and gentlemen, we're just showing you the chorus girls for purposes of ballyhoo. It's a pretty nice ballyhoo. But here's some of our real Mercury people. This is the first time you've seen most of them on the screen. Hey, uh, give Joe a little light. Thanks. Now smile for the folks, Joe. Smile. Joseph Cotton, ladies and gentlemen. That's it. Joseph Cotton. I think you're going to see a lot of him. Here's Ruth Warwick, whom I know you love. Ruth. Look at the camera, Ruth. <laughs> we caught Ruth with her hair up. And here's somebody you've all heard on the radio, so I don't have to tell you he's wonderful, Ray Collins. Dorothy Comengore is a name I'm going to repeat. Dorothy Comengore. I won't have to repeat it much longer. You'll be repeating it. And here's George Kouluris, who's a grand actor. I'll say that name again. George Kouluris. Watch it. Here comes Everett Sloan. Look out, Everett. Oops. Everett Sloan, ladies and gentlemen. He isn't necessarily a comedian. And here's one of the best actors in the world, Agnes Moorhead. I've said a lot of nice things, but Erskine Sanford deserves some more. Erskine, Erskine Sanford. So does Paul. Paul, Paul Stewart, everybody. Citizen Kane is a modern American story about a man called Kane, Charles Foster Kane. I don't know how to tell you about him. There's so many things to say. I'll turn you over instead to the characters in the picture. As you'll see, they feel very strongly on the subject. So it was a good movie. I mean, mm -hmm. It wasn't a great movie, but how often do you see a great movie? Oh, I saw a great movie last night. Yeah, it was, on, it was on The Late Show. It was, um, uh, uh, oh, what was it called? It, it's a classic. It's a real, it's a classic. It's, um, uh, oh, I hate this. I hate it when this happens. Well, what was it about? Uh, it's about this, uh, newspaper tycoon, and he's dead, and everybody's telling stories sure. about him, and It's it Citizen Case. No, that's not it. No, 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 but it's something like that. It's, uh, it's, um, uh... Okay, who is in it? Um, Orson Welles is in it. Oh. And it's And this is called... Citizen Kane. It's, it's Citizen Kane. No, that isn't it, that isn't it, but it's, 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 you're not far from it. It's, uh... uh... Well, who else was in it? Oh, um, uh, I don't know. I was was uh, Joseph Cotton in it? What else has he been in? Uh, uh, the, the, the Third Man, The Magnificent Ambersons. Oh, The Magnificent Ambersons, yes. Yes, yes, he was in it. Yes, oh, that's one of my favorite Orson Welles movies. Well, but this is definitely Citizen Kane, then. You're talking about Citizen mm. Kane. No, 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 but it's, it's something like that. It's, it's sis, 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 right, sis, 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 No, not sai. Sai, 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 no, no, I just told you it's about this newspaper tycoon. He had a sled named Rosebud, and, uh, and they're all trying then to. Then I guess it wasn't it. Psycho, was it? No, it wasn't Psycho. It was Citizen Kane. No, it was a a Angie, Angie, Angel, no, Angel, no, Angels. No, the no, trouble with. No, 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 it wasn't the trouble with Angels, no. That's a Haley Mills vehicle, that's not even close. The front page. Oh, the front page is a comedy. Did you laugh once? No. Then I guess it wasn't the front page, was it? What the hell was it then? Look, that guy has a newspaper. I'm gonna borrow, read the TV listings, and we'll settle this one. Oh, no, 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 no. Don't. I'm really the one to remember this myself. Please, I no, I want to get it. Please, 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 I want to remember this myself. Please, please, please. Just sit down. <laughs> Okay, big deal. There is a man, a certain man. And for the poor, you may be sure that he'll do all he can. Who is this one whose favorite son, just by his action, has the traction magnets on the run? Who likes to smoke, enjoys a joke, 
And wouldn't get a bit upset if he were really broke With wealth and fame, he's still the same I'll bet you five is not alive if you don't know his name Film students often come up to me outside of the context of our film studies class and ask, how um, can I study film history on my own? One of my um, classic hacks of film history is to study films on the edges of decades, primarily the early parts of a decade, because film and culture and zeitgeistian winds tend to blow whether they're anthropological winds or technological winds, they blow around the decade edges. 1941 was no exception. A few uh, landmark films came out that year, to name a few, Maltese Falcon, uh, Hitch's Suspicion, Preston Sturge's Sullivan's Travels, Ball of Fire, High Sierra, How Green Was My Valley. But perhaps the most important release of 1941 was the film we're going to discuss today with a man who would know. And that film is Dumbo, of course. Now, why was Dumbo, Disney's Dumbo, the most important release of that year? Because in a screening of Dumbo in New York City, a young child was taken out of the screening because he was crying. Now, that tactic didn't quite work because he would still be returning to the cinema throughout the rest of his life. His birthday is also marked in an interesting way because a year after he was born, Principal Photography started on a film that was also to be released in 1941. The film was, at some point, it was known as The American. At some point, it was known as John Citizen USA. And it is known to us as Citizen Kane. Orson Welles, Orson the Magnificent, Awesome Orson, the boy genius, the bear cub, never had a son by birth. He had daughters. However, he had cinematic sons, and we have one with us to talk about 75 years of Citizen Kane, then and now. He is a popularizer, an interlocutor, and a medium. He is an actor who directs, a graduate of the Roger Corman School of Filmmaking, and we welcome here, man, I have to have my Orson Welles quotes ready today for him, Professor Peter Bogdanovich. Peter, welcome to Murmur. How are you, sir? Good. How are you? I'm well, man. Thank you for jumping in with us. I really appreciate that. Uh, I'm going to ask you the question that I asked Buck Henry once about The Graduate. Uh, are you sick of talking about Citizen Kane? <laughs> well, no. I mean, I, I, Orson hated to talk about it. I don't mind. Um, he didn't want to talk about it because it's the only thing anybody ever talked to him about. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, they didn't, nobody's seen any of the other films and it frustrated him. Um, but no, I don't mind talking about it. Do you think we've forgotten it in a way? Uh, or when I was training and learning, uh, it was it was uh, pablum. You know, here we are, seventy five years later. Do you think a current crop of film enthusiasts and students and young makers are not talking about it? Well, um, it's a it's a seminal film. I saw it recently on the big screen. It's still a great piece of work. On this, it's 75th year. Was it a sort of commemorative screening, or did you sort of... Yeah, at the Egyptian. Oh, it must have looked amazing there. Yeah, it looked great. Yeah. I think you once said Kane was the first modern film. Is is, yeah. is Wells a modern filmmaker, even by today's standards? Very much so. Because you never lose that. Once I call you modern, you don't become the opposite of modern, I guess, old-fashioned. He's not old-fashioned, is he? No. He was an amazing guy and also a great filmmaker. Um, he made that film, never quite lived it down, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I do. You know, he once said, I started at the top and worked my way down. Yeah. It's it's sort of an albatross, and also it was a kind of green light in, in, in a way. Um, th there's, the, there's a generation of, of filmmakers, but yourself and even Scorsese said when he saw Kane, he realized what a director did. Uh, Billy Friedkin said he saw it eight times in a row. Um, he said it was the only lesson I've ever had on filmmaking. What's interesting, though, about, I believe the first time you saw it was 1955, correct? Yeah, that's right. And it's interesting because obviously it came out in 41. When did you first hear about it? Forget maybe when you first saw it. When, did, when was it first on your mental movie screen? 
I knew about it because my parents talked about it. Mm. And they, they mentioned it as being a great film. They saw it. They came to America in 1939, so it was, they were pretty new to the country when that came out. Mm. And uh, they, 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 it was one of the films they talked about you, as being a great film. I was watching the beginning again this morning. That exposition is insane because the whole film is revealed in a sense. Um, well, the exposition was a great idea. Mm. I just stole it for a picture I'm doing. Uh, I, I didn't do it. He did a takeoff on the March of Time, which was uh, uh, a weekly or monthly um, digest of news presented by Time, Time, Time Life. Mm. And they had a rather portentous way of presenting it. So he did an imitation of that uh, and called it News on the March. Right, right. And uh, it was it was a, definitely a takeoff on the uh, march of time, using that kind of convoluted sentence structure that that, that Time magazine used, what was called Time Ease, mm. and um, they used it for the doc, for the um, um, segment, the documentary segment at the beginning of the picture. Uh, ironically, Wells was the youngest man ever on the cover of Time magazine. Yeah. So what's interesting about that newsreel, we're talking to P Peter Bogdanovich here in Murmur, is you also learn he's been divorced twice. You learn that one his first wife dies in a car accident. And what's interesting about that exposition, as you say, Peter... Along with his son. Exactly, exactly. And that makes that scene, when we get to it... it, it gives a kind of ghost effect to it. So it not only, as you say, takes away that burden... It creates a kind of energy about the events, which I think is lovely. It's a, it was a new kind of expectation level, I would imagine, at that time. Yeah. Um, talking, it's funny also that about the newsreel. Uh, Wells said something to you, which I thought was funny. He said when the when the uh, film opened in Milan, seeing that sort of scratchy newsreel footage, uh, they thought they were getting the Italians thought they were getting an inferior copy of the film, uh, that that textured newsreel, which is you know obviously is so beautiful. Um, you started as an actor, and I heard you most eloquently speak about Wells's acting. I, I agree. I maintain he's one of the great screen actors. It may be one of the great casualties of the film. We don't talk about him as an actor enough. Why is that? Why do you think he? His work in that film, and maybe in general, has not has maybe been overlooked. Well, he himself didn't particularly like acting. He he he, he preferred to direct. Mm. Mm. And um, but I mean, Citizen Kane, that performance at twenty five is staggering. It's it's unreal. Uh, that th th that to me is is what makes that year that age so insane. If we never saw him in the film. It, we could maybe rationalize his age better, but that just discombobulates the brain. Yeah, it does. And, and you and you said something that's spot on. He actually said himself that he doesn't see acting as a profession. He says, it's not a job. He says, as an actor, I am an amateur. And amateur, the word amateur comes from the Greek word to love. So he did it, as, as you suggest, out of love. Everything I'm quoting, he basically said to you. Uh, but he, I know it's, at one point he said, the moment when Susan Alexander wakes up, you know, sort of comes to from her last flashback and says, it's morning already, was the moment that touched him the most. Do you have a favorite moment from Kane? Well, I think... I think I have many favorite moments from Kane. It's just a, it's a delight. But um, I think... Um, I, I like the m most touching moments in the picture, which... Um, which are basically when he when he uh, is talking to um, um, uh, his second wife now, Susan Alexander, yes. And she says, "You know what mothers are," and he kind of gets a dreamy look on his face and says, "Yeah." Yes, yes. That's, that's the the, touching. the first scene, the toothache scene when he's trying yeah, to make then, her laugh. Yeah, and then when when Agnes Moorhead opens the window and says, "Charles." Trunk all packed. I've had it packed for a week. It's very touching. Incredible. I like those those moments because they they belie the fact that the picture is cold. It's not cold. It's just it's, subtle. It's downbeat. Oh, it's it, very downbeat. There's no question about that. And, and that, it's 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 amazing that that film, which is extraordinarily downbeat, 
there isn't anything that anybody gets good out of it. <laughs> yes, yes. In terms of the plot. Yes, yes. And yet it, it doesn't seem depressing, probably because the technique and the, the style in which it's made is so youthful and, and, and optimistic and exciting mm. that it, it creates a kind of tension between the, the delivery of the material and the material itself. And the rhythm, the, the montage, and I think this is something as we look back at Wells, all the way to F for Fake, where he was literally creating a speed of editing that we see now, it's commonplace. But the speed of Kane is breezy, <laughs> in a sense. I, I, I always feel like it's the quickest hour and 58 minutes of an epic, you know, um, with long takes. I mean, it's really a feat of magic from a great magician. Um, and Robert Wise, who was part of the dream team of creators. I asked Horst about that. Yeah. He said there wasn't much to cut. Yeah. Um, yeah. They shot a lot of long takes, and Orson, uh, Orson's never relied on an editor. It's a misconception of what an editor does. A lot of times the editor just splices the stuff together mm. and doesn't really make any creative decisions. And uh, since Wise didn't turn out to be a very good director in the long run, <laughs> I, I don't I don't give him much credit for the cutting. It's uh, it's interesting, and, and this is something he talked about with Jack Ford, John Ford, that Tolan talked a lot about Ford not using coverage as such. And I, I know it's something that you talked about with uh, Last Picture Show. And and as we know, it's kind of a way to hermetically seal the film from you know you you create the decision making in the camera. Um, yeah. It's harder to do, though, now, isn't it? Because you have people who think they know everything. <laughs> well, I don't pay attention to those people. I just shoot what I want to use, and I don't shoot anything else. I, I, I applaud you, man. He was given this large, uh, large amount of leash to create this film. Do you think that created any resentment in Hollywood, or do you think that's overstated? I'm sure there was resentment. This town is full of envy and jealousy. Yeah, I'd heard. I'd heard no, I mean, that. I'd heard that. Yeah. It would be. It would be surprising if it did. If the contract he had alone was was infuriating to some regulars here. Yeah, and and apparently he he'd never directed a picture, and he had the final cut. You know. Yeah. yeah. And apparently they were booed rather roundly during the Oscars. Whatever that's a referendum on. Um, did that? Do you think that hurt Wells? Do you think the the lack of quote unquote acceptance within the establishment, because the great filmmakers loved him, though. Well, Ford liked him a lot. Yeah. And I remember talking about Orson with Ford later in life, and he still was very complimentary about Orson, referred to him as a very talented man, and a fine director. He, he never, he didn't exactly do that very often, Ford. <laughs> yes. Wells was going to direct the last hurrah at some point. Does that sink? No, Wells was, uh, was asked to play the lead in the last hurrah. The Spencer Tracy part, okay. Yeah, and uh, he couldn't do it. Mm. Talking about the different collaborations within the film, what about Tolan? Do you think he's... Uh, I think we. I think most young cinematographers may not even know who Greg Tolan is. Maybe well, that, they should. I know. It's, Greg Tolan would be, was probably the best cameraman at that period uh, that, that, that was alive. I mean, he was great and um, wanted to work with Orson because he said the only way you can learn anything in this business is to work with somebody who doesn't know anything about it. I love that. And um, evidently Orson, because Orson did a lot of lighting in the theater, thought that the lighting was his uh, um, job and told him let him go let him go walk around to setting the lights and was annoyed when somebody finally told Orson that that was really Greg Tolan's job <laughs> well, well it seems good of Greg or Tolan to let Wells do it because as you know there's always that BS hierarchy on film sets which drives me yeah well Tolan Tolan was impressed with Orson and wanted to see what he would do yeah. and then he, he, he uh, Orson did the lighting and Tolan would sort of go behind him and fix it up a little bit. <laughs> That's a gentleman and a good mentor. And, yeah. And he, and he taught him, he, he famously, paraphrasing again, told Wells the camera can be learned all in a weekend. 
Um, yeah. Did he tutor him through the, the camera as well? Is that did he give him a kind of because that again is generous as you know sometimes cinematographers you know Woody Allen once told I think Joel Schumacher work with a cinematographer who doesn't want to direct the film it's a strange subtext isn't it uh, but Tolan seemed to be very generous in, in, in that way yeah I think he admired Orson and um, figured he could learn something yeah I believe and you would correct this Please correct us if it's not sinking. But um, the first, I believe, 10 days of shooting Kane, the, uh, Greg Tolan suggested to Orson to make the announcement that they were only doing camera tests. Yeah. Because there were spies afoot. Does that synchronize with... Oh, yeah. He, he said, let's uh, do some tests. And they, <laughs> actually ended, they actually were shooting the picture. <laughs> this is a way of buying extra time. You, can someone get away with that now, or is or is that just too too too? I did it on some picture. I did it on. They all laughed. I shot some tests. <laughs> I ended up using in the picture. Yes, <laughs> I like that. Tell tell the producers we're doing camera tests. Uh, yeah, they don't know. <laughs> they don't even know what a camera test is. Right. Uh, uh, speaking with uh, Peter Bogdanovich, you know, looking at at Kane myself a few times this week, you know, thinking about our current, you know, our recent election. And and Kane, you know, there's some there's some chimes of the bell within Kane that, you know, there's that moment when Kane runs for governor and there Bernstein is saying, do we run this headline or this headline fraud at polls? You know, thinking of our newly crowned president. I mean, it's it, it is a damn film we should watch now. No, <laughs> I heard Trump. It's it's um. Trump, one of Trump's favorite movies. Are you kidding me? Does he think it's a documentary? <laughs> yeah, maybe he thinks it's about him. <laughs> he thinks it's a PBS special. Uh, well, there's also that part of the, in the newsreel footage where they, they, the newsreel sort of criticizes Kane for renouncing and and then def, uh, defending world leaders such uh, while he's standing next to Hitler. Yeah. Uh, you know, sort of conveniently. So, you know... Then First support, then denounce, right. Uh, looking a little at the fallout, you know, the Kane fallout, um, which to me is sort of silly and, and brilliant. Uh, K- Orson once said, after Kane, I should have retired. Um, I, I, I picked this up somewhere I thought was interesting. Before Amberson's, that he reworked his contract so he wouldn't have final cut. Do you recall Orson talking about the transition from Kane into Ambersons? Did anything change about, was the love affair over or was the love affair kind of in mid-crisis at that point? Well, I think the fact that Kane um, didn't do very well, um, even though it got great reviews, Yeah, uh, I think that made some people at RKO nervous. I think it didn't make Schaefer nervous because he, Went right along with Kane. I mean, with uh, Ambersons. Yeah. And, but they had these terrible previews of Ambersons that that killed the picture. Uh, they they previewed it with the, absolutely the wrong picture, something some some silly musical of Follow the Fleet or something. There were two previews of Ambersons, and the picture didn't score well. Yeah. And they got very scared. And they asked other directors to come in and fix it up. Some of them refused. One of them famously said, just shake the thing and, you know, you'll, it can lose half an hour and then just keep whatever didn't fall out. If you were a young filmmaker who was trying to break through, and the studio at that time had asked you to, to take a look at uh, Ambersons, would you, would you have done it? Yeah. Why would you have gone into that? Right. We would try to help him, you know. Yeah, yeah. We would have tried to help him and and, and support his his um, his his uh, view, viewpoint. Unfortunately, he wasn't in the country; he was in Rio. Do you think he regretted going to Brazil to to work on? Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think he did. Yeah. Let's say he doesn't go to Brazil. What happens? Does he win that well, fight? He would have been able to. He would have been able to cut the picture the way he thought it ought to be cut which would certainly have been a lot better than Bob Wise. Do you think he resented Wise? Do you think he resented Wise because of that as no, well? No, he just made fun of him. <laughs> 
that's even better than resenting someone. I find just make. I think he was pretty annoyed at Wise, who went around saying he'd saved the fixture. Is that is that what he was proclaiming that he had saved it? I think well, he, kind of, yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah. people attacked him over the years, and he's you know it was his job. He was a second. He was a, not a first uh, class cutter at that point. He was just starting. Mm. Mm. Not just starting, but I mean, he wasn't like a big deal. He tried to self-aggrandize himself um, by talking about how he'd saved the film. He'd actually helped to fuck it up, but it wasn't his fault. He was doing as he was told. He was doing what he was told. Well, if, if we want to take that to a logical extension, and you know, for those of you we're talking to Peter Bogdanovich, for those of you who don't know the history books on Ambersons, which is a different conversation for a different day, there's footage that may or may not be destroyed or missing. Do you think this footage exists, the, the leftover Amberson footage, or is it destroyed as some of It doesn't of seem to exist, but you never know if something could turn up. That, there was a print that went to Rio, and we don't know what happened to that print. Maybe, maybe it still exists. Yeah. You, you said something right on and I just want to reclaim it for our audience just to restate it that Kane I think one of the myths of Kane is Kane didn't get the theater time therefore was part of the floppery correct in the sense that they simply didn't have the the length of a comet's tail to get the film seen you saw it in 1955 you can make the argument that the French critics critics in the 60s and then a retrospective of Orson in the early 60s at MoMA put the film back on the map. But would you say the film's flopping, Kane's flopping, had to do with access? They couldn't get theaters. Um, Is that a, a Hearst thing? Were, a lot of theaters were afraid to play it because Hearst would, was blacklisting it. They wouldn't, he wouldn't let them advertise in his, paper, in his newspaper. Yeah. So it was, it was dicey, and they couldn't get good theaters. Yeah. A lot of the chains wouldn't play it. And as Orson said, you can't have a hit picture if nobody isn't playing it. Yeah, yeah. It, that was the main thing that was, was the problem was a lot of theaters wouldn't play it. A, a young Harvey Weinstein was probably taking notes at that point. Um, that's maybe. That's a bastard, man. That's that's the height of deceit and sin, cinema sin to put something away before it's time. And, you know, again, it's kind of the last sequence of Cain. You know, it's these buried treasures. I want to look at a little bit more at your first meeting with him, with the great Orson uh, Peter. Early 60s, MoMA asked you to do the monograph. What was the feeling of Wells in the early 60s? Was he a household name anymore? I mean, Touch of Evil was 58. Touch of Evil was seen to be something that didn't come to fruition. What was the ethos around Wells... Uh, in the early 60s. And negative. What, negative or non-existent, or both? Both, but, yeah. but largely negative. I mean, um, his Shakespeare films were were not popular, and they were hardly seen in this country. Yeah. Uh, he won the Cannes Film Festival Grand Prize for, for Othello, but... Uh, you know, the can didn't mean much in America in those days. The monograph you wrote for MoMA, what was the what was the essence of it? Was part of the essence this sort of criminality <laughs> that we we had forgotten Wells? I mean, do you recall the kind of the subtext? Well, I, I wrote about each of the films that he had made by then, mm. Mm. except the trial, which he was making as we as we were doing the. The uh, monograph, and also the I, I was curating the the the, the this retrospective, which ran all his all the ones he directed, and it went went on for a few months. Was any part of you looking at it as a cause, so to say? Uh, sure. Yeah, yeah, and and then and and seven years later, your cause came to roost when you got a phone call. Yes, he called me. How did he I get your he, number? I, <laughs> I think he got it from Danny Selznick. Okay. Was this before targets or after targets or during targets? I had made targets and he'd seen it actually. Yeah. What, did, what, did, what did he think of Because I, I, I want to have another call with you at some point simply to talk about targets, which to me is a film that has not lost an ounce of its beauty and importance. But that's another story for another day. Uh, but I wanted to say that today. Um, Thank you. What did, what did Wells, do you recall what Wells, other than him saying he liked it or saw it, do you remember what Wells thought of He Target? said he saw it in New York. Yeah. 
And he, he thought it was very good. He didn't go, go into detail. So Wells calls you. Did you think it was a prank? Were prank phone calls popular at that time? <laughs> no, I thought I could recognize his voice. Right. Were you worried that he was going to give you some backlash, or was it just out of body at that point? <clears throat> he was extremely friendly and um, and invited me. He said he'd loved the monograph and uh, said he said it's the truest words ever written about me in English. And um, invited me to come see him at the Beverly Hills Hotel the next day, which I did. <laughs> yes. That's when we met. Amazing, amazing. And he was—he was very disarming, I must say. The, the first time I met him, he could be extremely disarming. In, in what sense did he test? Was he an intellectual tester? Was he a physical tester? What, what was that? No, no, no. We just—he was very open. And very warm. He was so disarming that I had the nerve to say after after about two hours, I felt like I'd known him for a, for years, and um, he was he was so disar- he, he was so um, pleasant that when I, I even had the nerve to say that it was one film of his I didn't like, Wh- which was said, which, which one? Yes. And he said. I said, the trial. He said, I don't either. <laughs> and I said, oh, really? Well, that's interesting. <laughs> and um, a couple of months, about a month later, when I was doing the book with him, I said something slightly disparaging about the trial. And he said, I wish you'd stop saying that. <laughs> you didn't like the picture. He said, no. I said that to please you. I like the picture very much, but I respect your opinion and... When you denigrate it, you diminish my small treasure. Oh, my goodness. I said, oh, shit. (laughs) You were one of the real advocates for him in that period. Did he feel friendless? That's a strange adjective. But did did you sense that he was without advocacy uh, at that point? Did you feel that he was especially open? Or was it simply a connection the two of you had? I think we had a very strong connection. Yeah. He was having trouble raising money, of course. And I didn't meet him until later that same year. Um, I met him that evening when he called me. I met him the next day. But then we, we didn't see each other for a little while. And then I saw, start, started seeing him in, in, in Mexico uh, when he was shooting Catch-22. Uh, but um, I, I think he had friends, but he... He's he looking for money. Speaking with legendary filmmaker Peter Bogdanovich here in Murmur, Wells and Oya Kodar were uh, tenants, not tenants, but they they lived with you in Bel Air. Was that A true? B was it during Other Side of the Wind? Before Other Side of the Wind? Where do we lo- um, like, locate that temporarily? He was he he stayed with, at my house. Uh, I invited him to. I said, you need you want to stay at my place? He said yes. And he, he sort of came there off and on, with Oya sometimes, but often without. And he would stay there for a few days and leave and come back, or he would stay for a while and then leave and come back. I, I'd say he went there, he was there for over a period of two or three years. Well, was that his want, his his gypsy, you know? Yeah, he, he certainly was a gypsy. Yeah. And he was aware of it. He called himself a gypsyo. Is that right? The other side of the wind, folks who are listening can do their own digging around on this. I just want to ask you, the, the, I, don't want, I don't want to bury the lead, so may I ask you one question about it? Um, gun to your head, will, will we ever see it? Uh, Orson asked me to finish it. If anything ever happened to him, he said, would you finish the film? I said, why should anything happen to you? And he said, Nothing, nothing's going to happen, but if it does, will you promise me you'll finish the picture? I said, yes. That was 30 years ago that he passed away. 30 fucking years, and I'm still trying to get it finished for him. We're, we're, we've been close for years. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it, it seems like we're closer than ever, but you just don't know. It's, you just don't know. And, and I, think, I think it will work out in the next couple of months. If something were to happen to you, who would finish the film? God knows. Do you ever think a film... Maybe that film is never meant to be seen. I mean, do you do you think there's value in a film never being seen? No, I think it should be seen. It's got great stuff in it. John Huston gives a great performance. Yeah. Um, everybody in it is very good. Everybody, everybody's very interesting in it. What's it like to see yourself, circa 1970, in the footage? 
Does that give you pause? A little, little strange. <laughs> can you divorce yourself from that element of it, that this is really a document of your life? Yeah, yeah, I can, yeah. Nice. I've, I've acted in enough things to <laughs> yes. not not be overwhelmed by that. If we look at some of the footprint of Wells, some of the, you know, people like to talk about the films he didn't finish, and again, those are legion. Look them up if you want. If you're listening, just look them up. I don't need to annotate them. But I have a question, and this is something actually I asked Henry Jaglum, and I want to ask you: Do you think Wells had a fear of success? I don't think so. I think Charles Hyam wrote a book in which he said that Orson had a fear of completion, mm. that he was afraid to finish a movie. Um, I don't think that's true, but I, I do think he certainly got beaten up enough in his own country for all the movies he made after Citizen Kane. And he was just not understood in this country. Where do you think he was most at home? Where do you think he felt most loved? Well, they loved him in France. and They, they loved him in Italy, uh, but particularly France. Yeah, yeah. He was supposed to do a film in France. They were going to make King Lear. Yeah, and they let him down. Yeah, and he would have played Lear, correct? Yeah, yeah. What, what of all the projects that he didn't finish complete? Uh, so let's put other side of the wind apart. What, which is the film on paper that you think would have been, you know, from Don Quixote to The Dreamers to whatever? Is there a film that you lament him not have, taking a whack at? Well, I wish he'd finished Don Quixote. I wish he'd finished the uh, Dead Reckoning or whatever you call it, the the Deep. He called it the Deep. Yes. Um, I wish he'd finished those. And the, I've seen some clips from um, that he did for uh, Sh- uh, Shylock, a Merchant of Venice. Yeah, it was really brilliant stuff. Brilliant stuff. It's just tragic. One of the things, he in, he had talked about this with Greg Tolan, just to wind back to Citizen Kane. Um, essentially, he said to Tolan, isn't it ridiculous that film is in the camera? Um, that the day will come where we won't carry film around. And he said, we'll be carrying the lens as the eye. You know, and here we are, right? So, so many, he sort of intuitively, technologically saw these things coming. It's rather stunning, isn't it? Um, he, he, he says he, he did say that to Tolan. He doesn't it make any sense? Doesn't make any sense for the film to be in the camera, does it? Yes. And yes. Tolan agreed. Also, late in his life, he t- he was taking meetings with HBO because HBO wanted to do a mini a mini series. So again, he saw in a, in a way, <laughs> you could appreciate this from your work with HBO, the HBO episodic revolution. <laughs> you know, it's amazing how many res- revolutions Wells w- w- was a predictor of. That's true. He, he passed away in 1985. Were you at the funeral? There really wasn't a funeral. Was that his... Uh, his w- daughter didn't really have a funeral. Does that keep in it, tune with it, what he wanted, or do you feel that was just an aberration? Uh, kind of an aberration. Did you ever commemorate it, Peter, within your circle? I mean, was there anything ever a public goodbye for him? That you felt was no. me- was meaningful. Do, do, do you feel is that a, is that a, a casualty of all this, or well, is that kind his of family had the had the, made that decision, and they they didn't have a they really didn't have a big big uh, funeral. Yeah. I wasn't even invited. W- were you not on solid terms with the family at that point? I didn't know the family very well. I know Beatrice better now than I did then. And um, they didn't do what he wanted. He didn't, didn't want to be cremated, and they had him cremated. And uh, I, I know that would have upset him. He's buried uh, on some piece of land um, in Spain that belonged to a bullfighter friend of his. He would have been upset by by being cremated. Yeah, he didn't want to be cremated. Was he an especially spiritual man near the end of his life or at any points in his life? Uh, I think he was, but he didn't talk about it. His favorite writer was Robert Graves, who's very spiritual. That's interesting. Yeah, and, and as he famously said, how they'll love me when I'm dead. Um, as, 
I want to leave off with one thought and and one question because it's something you you stated so beautifully. Your recollection of watching Ambersons with him on television reluctantly, and yeah, he didn't watch much of it. Right, he had left the room, and uh, nearly to tears. Well, he actually watched it for a while, and and tears came to his eyes, and uh, his back was to me, so I couldn't see him, but Oya Kodar saw him, and she gestured that he was crying, and I asked him about it later, a couple of days later, I said, because of what they did to the film, he said, no, that just makes me angry. It wasn't because of that, he said, I was moved because, you know, it's it's over, It's, it's in the past. That that makes my heart heavy, as I say, in speaking with you. And to me, you are, pardon this awful met- metaphor, but I, you're kind of a, an urn of of all these, of not only Wells, but Ford and Hawks. I mean, what are we to do? Just not remember the past? Are we, uh, what do we do with the past? What did he want us to do with his past? Simply move on to the next thing? I mean, it. Uh, what, what what does what did Wells want his legacy to be? I mean, does, does, is he happy that you and I are sitting here talking about him? Would this please him, or is would he be agnostic to this idea that you're we're still talking about him? This film seventy five years later. No, I think he he'd say that figures. <laughs> <laughs> and what what would he make of? iPhones and movies that aren't seen in cinemas would that hurt his heart that we can see a movie uh, outside of a cinema and that cinema as an architecture is changing would would this uh, would this have broken his heart a little or would he have found a way to well, I think he I think he would be you know, there's nothing like a theater experience there's no question about that so I'm sure he would not be happy with the fact that many films are now just seen on computers or at home and so on Someone like you who has talked about well, talked and written about Wells, conversed with Wells, Hawks, Jack Ford, John Ford, Billy Wilder, D- D- Preston Sturges. Is it more? Is the value of that information more or less important given the the shifting sand of what cinema is? That's about as grand a, a question I can end with as possible. But I'm worried. I'm worried that my love and information is going to become obsolete. Do you feel your legacy is now fortified, or do you feel everything is up in the air right now? To be honest with you, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know. I, I think <laughs> I've been trying to get people to look at older films because it's a treasure chest of of of, of of wonderful things, and um, they're missing out on so much. I don't know. Young people are bored with older films. What do you want your legacy to be, Peter? Oh, geez, I don't know. I made a few movies that are not bad. <laughs> <laughs> now you sound like Wells. <laughs> and I made uh, I wrote some books to commemorate the people who made those films. I don't know. I have no idea what people will think. I always thought of myself as a kind of popularizer. Yeah. Like Shaw said, you know, he said he didn't consider himself a music critic as much as a popularizer. Trying to make popular those things that he liked. I'm I'm, I'm sort of the same way. I think of you as a, a torch a tour guide the most eloquent tour guide through the as deeply as, as closely as you can get to these masters you, the reason we have gotten close to them yes watching their films get us gets us there but you have lifted the curtain on some of the most important cinematic thought of your or any generation so on behalf of people who will still care myself included i want to thank you and um if we could ever return the favor if i could ever return the favor don't hesitate to ask Thank you very much. That's very kind of you. Be well, my friend. Thank you. Good luck. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know what you'll think about Mr. Kane. I can't imagine. You see, I play the part myself. Well, Kane is a hero and a scoundrel, a no-account and a swell guy, a great lover, a great American citizen, and a dirty dog. It depends on who's talking about him. What's the real truth about Charles Foster Kane? I wish you'd come to this theater when Citizen Kane plays here and decide for yourself.
So loving the past is a really difficult proposition. It's it's sort of a difficult um, characteristic. <laughs> it's a difficult contract. With it, one uh, needs to have a distance and a uh, intimacy with the object of love, that thing. Because if you get too close to that thing, you a anything we get unnaturally close to inevitably disappoints us. B if if we remain too close to a thing, its decline is seen as as quite a dramatic decline. But as human beings, we can't help but repeat our own mistakes. <laughs> That's okay. I, and I think movies are changing. Cinema is changing. It just changed from when I started the sentence to now ending it. Boop. So invariably, when anything is related to something very temporal, like technology, I mean, everything is temporal, but let's not go down that path today. Uh, but in a tactile temporal sense as long as technology is biodegradable is degradable but if you look at anything as if you simply see the decrescendo of anything whether it's time or filmmakers life in history or film historians or philosophers life in histories if everything is a decrescendo you're ignoring the crescendo that comes out of it Francois Truffaut once said that uh, more people Citizen Kane inspired more careers in the film business than any other film. It's kind of a great sent sentence. It, it it wasn't of my generation to inspire. I think it definitely inspired people of Peter's generation. Uh, uh, Billy William Friedkin is obviously a huge advocate as well, amongst others. Uh, the the uh, Nouvelle Vague adored Wells. They, they, he was sort of one of their fathers. I find it interesting, this idea of, deteriorating love in cinema, let alone in life. But Bogdanovich, when he uh, amassed his book on great filmmakers, not the one he did on Wells, but he also did one on uh, where he interviewed Hitch, he interviewed uh, Leo McCary, he interviewed Fries Long, he interviewed Raoul Walsh, and what's interesting about that, so Fritz Lang, when Peter interviewed Fritz Lang, Fritz was blind, I believe, at the time. And I believe Raoul Walsh was also blind at the time. And Hitch was in, uh, very late in his life uh, and had his own demons, as a lot of filmmakers do. And filmmakers of that that time frame that were that were really optimistic and you know, if if Citizen Kane created a sense of heightened optimism in the field, it, the 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 farmers of that field were no less optimistic. But frankly, they were let down as much as anyone. the The decline of Wells's career, for lack of a better word, is as much a statement on hurt as ours is as people who love that film and people who love cinema and, and think we may have lost a lot, too much to reclaim along the way. So Peter, speaking to him, I found him a, not dispassionate about it, but I think you have to be realistic about time. And, and as, as our age changes, as it just changed my age. I just got older from the time I started this sentence to the time I finished it. Oop. We... It's not as though things mean less. I think things find a different home within us. We simply can't sustain that much emotion for that long a period of time. We can, within our life, feel emotion, but to feel the height and the passion of an object and the draw of passion 24-7, 365, it takes its toll. And after a lifetime of seeing friends go and films change, it's bittersweet. 
We want to thank Peter Bogdanovich for being here via phone talking about Citizen Kane. If you haven't seen it, slap yourself and then go see it. Uh, MurmurRadio.com every Friday, 2 p.m. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, WHUPLP.org in real time. See you soon.